Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And what a show we have for you today. You know how transfer pricing can kind of be tedious, confusing, time-consuming, because you constantly have to wrestle with that darned arm's-length principle? Well, today we're going to make that a little easier, clearer at least, by diving into transfer pricing methodology. You know, those OECD-approved ways that you prove you're at arm's length, or at least let you reasonably cross your fingers and hope you're at arm's length. Okay, I can practically hear those yawns through my headphones, but bear with me. This is going to be interesting. Today, we're taking on traditional transactional methodologies. Say what? Agreed. It's a mouthful, but it's so important. And Andre Anoyu, Cross-Border Solutions VP of Global Economic Operations, is here to make this type of transfer pricing methodology stimulating. No pressure, Andre, but pull out all the stops. Please. Thanks, Fiona. As you just heard, Fiona, Cross-Border Solutions' brilliant AI transfer pricing know-it-all is here, along with being the delightful anchor of our show. She also helps with those annoying things we like to call facts. We call them facts, Matt, because they're facts. I see you're feeling a little feisty today, Fiona. Uh, There's more good news. Mimi Song, Cross-Border Solutions' chief economist, is also here, and she'll be asking Andre questions about transactional methods. By the way, the Fiona Show allows you to earn CPE credits. Here's how it works. We will provide two CPE code words during the course of this podcast. Listen and email both, and you will need both to earn the CPE credits to the Fiona Show at crossbordersolutions.io. That's the Fiona Show, all one word, and we will send you your certificates. But before I hand the mic to Mimi, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. News from the Seychelles Revenue Commission. The crackdown on country-by-country reports continues, this time with the Republic of Seychelles. In the country's recent release of the Revenue Administration Regulations 2019, authorities laid out exactly what they're looking for in those revealing documents. And they probably could have saved some time if instead they just noted what you could omit. But okay, here it goes. The authorities want to know about your group's revenue, profit, loss before for income tax, income tax paid, income tax accrued, share capital, accumulated earnings. If you like to take long walks on the beach, okay, they don't really care about that. But I wanted to be sure you were still listening. Of course, the country requires the number of employees in the group intangible assets other than cash or cash equivalents. As usual, you'll also have to identify each constituent entity of the MNE group, including the tax residents of each entity, and make sure you submit within 12 months after the tax year ends, starting with the tax year ending December 31st, 2019. Are you an MNE entity doing direct sales in Italy? Now you can request to be considered a permanent establishment. That's if you meet a certain criteria, of course. First, you have to belong to a large multinational group with worldwide turnover that exceeds 1 billion euros in at least one of the last three years. The goods or services you supplied to Italy-based companies in one of the last three years has exceeded 50 million euros, and you have to carry out those sales to one or more Italian resident 
companies in your group. And if the tax authorities have already notified you about an audit or one is in progress, let's just say you need not apply. Sorry. Why bother becoming a permanent resident? The perks include penalty reduction, tax certainty, bypassing criminal tax prosecution, and some of the best views in all of the Mediterranean. Here's a wake-up call for U.S. multinationals doing business in the United Kingdom. The HM Revenue and Customs believes that multinational companies from the U.K. and around the world have underpaid their 2017-2018 taxes by about 27.8 billion British pounds. That's roughly $35 billion in case you were tripping over the math. What's worse is that Her Majesty's tax authorities believe that U.S. multinationals are responsible for 17% of that deficit, about $6 billion. Not exactly pocket change, so the U.K. wants that money back. The plan? Well, there is that new digital service tax, which will surely help replenish the bank account, but it's not coming until 2020, and as the revenue and customs officials see it, why wait? They're stepping up tax evasion investigations now, and if you're a U.S. multinational, the thinking is you're guilty until proven innocent. If you're part of a multinational, let's say you haven't done anything wrong, but you're still not sleeping at night, hey, we're not here to judge. You might want to ease your conscience at the Profit Diversion and Compliance Facility. Do it before the end of 2019, and you can manage the process and avoid some penalties, which, given that this is the United Kingdom, can be royally steep. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Having both Mimi Song and Andre Anoyu is a real get for us here on The Fiona Show. But the truth is, talking transfer pricing is nothing out of the ordinary for this dream team in the office. You can often find the two of them huddled over reports and documents, knee-deep in discussions about everything from local documentation requirements to economic benchmark requirements to transfer pricing methodology. The brilliance that they bring to the table, as you'll see in just a few minutes, is that they can talk about transfer pricing like ordinary people. Oh, okay, ordinary experts, not merely rule-loving, jargon-speaking economists. You know who you are. Anyway, Mimi and Andre, welcome, and thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Matthew. So, as usual, before we get started on this wonderful topic of transfer pricing, let's find out a little bit more about Andre. So, Andre's got a a pretty good story when it comes to his relationship with Cross-Border Solutions. So, can you give us a little bit of that history, Andre? Sure. I've known Mimi for 20 years, so <laughs> I, I know it's definitely not for her benefit. Um, so I, I actually joined Cross-Border Solutions in the first iteration as an intern during my senior year at NYU Stern, uh, and uh, I saw this, actually had a, had a friend 
who was also interning with, with cross-border solutions. And uh, I was a, an international business and finance double major, and I said, oh, that's transfer pricing. That sounds really interesting. We haven't learned anything about it in school 20 years ago that wasn't part of the curriculum. These days, it's it's actually become a little bit of, of the curriculum. And um, lo and behold, after after graduating, I, uh, I started with the company full-time, started preparing client documentation, and then started leading client engagements, and uh, wound up leading the professional services team. So, I mean, you, you stuck around with transfer pricing. Uh, I, I know you took a little hiatus doing something else, but, it, you know, you came back to transfer pricing. What is it that you find interesting? First off, I, I would say having the visibility into all these different industry supply chains and really understanding what makes all these different companies tick is fascinating to me. Um, second, you know, the... The strategic nature of what we do and being able to really piece together a puzzle that then tells a consistent story to all the tax authorities worldwide for taxpayers is um, is, is a challenge, right? And, and it's a challenge that I really enjoy. And I know that you recently um, changed your role within Cross Border Solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about what your what your uh, current role is going to involve? Sure, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I've I've taken on a little bit a little bit more of a product management role, uh, and so I'm going to be working closely with uh, our technology group uh, as well as the business to um, ensure that our products going forward continue to excel and create waves in the market. I know I'm excited about your new role, that's for sure. I mean, you have a, a wealth of experience managing the professional services team. And so my last question really is about what are some of the challenges that you've seen our customers face working in this industry? Yeah, you know, I, I have to say that the biggest challenge we face is um, just inconsistency in, in all of the documentation that mm-hmm. um, that is prepared, right? And so the traditionally working with local firms in each and every country, well, you know, that, that gets you boots on the ground. It, it creates um, a very disparate story uh, from, from one country to the next. And so we, you know, day in and day out, we see reports from various countries for the same taxpayer that, 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 tell the, the tax authorities different things. And the danger in this day and age, as you know, Mimi, is, you know, staggering um, when when you have that issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, de- I agree with you. I think the landscape has changed. Companies used to manage documentation unilaterally. That's right. But now, with sharing of information, you have to look at everything on a holistic basis, right? 100%. So. All right. Well, that ends our background questions on Andre. Let's get into the meat of the topic here at hand, right? We really want to go back to the basics here for our audience, and we want to talk about what is a transfer pricing method? So, you know, the bottom line is a transfer pricing method is one of the prescribed methods that is widely accepted by various tax authorities and the OECD 
that proves to those tax authorities that a taxpayer's intercompany transaction is, in fact, arm's length. And, and when you talk about the term arm's length, I mean, you know, I, I mm. literally put my arm out whenever I explain it. <laughs> I'm like, arm's length. What does that mean, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that the best way to, to look at it is, um, you know, we treat each other not as though we're we're siblings, right. uh, multinational, no, hugs. No, right. hugs. no hugs, arm's length, two third parties transacting, and what? how would they transact? That's right. Okay. That makes sense. That I would not lend $20 to Joe Schmo on the street just because he came up to me, right? That's right. So, but I would like you $20. That's, I would, <laughs> and I thank you for that. It's that old uh, seventh grade dancing meme. <laughs> Leave enough room for, <laughs> for tax <laughs> So going back to transfer pricing. So from a method perspective, what are the different methods out there? So there... Uh, the different methods actually fall into two categories. There's transactional methods and there's profit-based methods. Um, there are five, you know, if you, if you look at them holistically, there's five of them that are really widely accepted throughout. But, um, but at the end of the day, there's two different types. Okay. And I think the focus of this podcast today is actually going to be on transactional methods, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. So... Explain to our audience here, Andre, what is the difference between a transaction-based method and a profit-based method? So the the best way um, to look at it, there's really one factor that overarching factor that um, that you have to look at. A transaction-based method is really a direct comparison of the transaction the intercompany transaction between two parties, whereas a profit-based method really seeks to, to indirectly benchmark that price and prove that it's arm's length. And, and it does that by looking at the profitability of one side of the transaction, potentially both sides of the transaction. Uh, and so it's, it, again, it's indirect, right? You're basically... Um, saying to the tax authority, look, if at the end of the day, one of my parties is earning the right amount, then the transaction which impacts that profitability must be arm's length. Whereas a transactional method really says, look, I know what, what, the, uh, um, what my intercompany price is. I have comparisons that I can use. Uh, with different parameters, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about you know whether you use unit price, whether you use a margin, but you compare that parameter to other transactions directly, and you're basically telling the tax authority, look, I've got these five other transactions that are uh, uh, that prove that are priced at the same uh, amount as my intercompany transaction, proves that it's arm's length. Right, and I'm wondering if we should ask Fiona how she would define the difference between a transaction-based method and a profit-based method. Fiona, would you like to take that one? Happy to. Transactional methods make comparisons between related party transactions and similar transactions in unrelated parties and compares unit price, gross margin, or royalties earned. Whereas profit-based transactions compare the profitability. All right. So... From a transaction-based method perspective, and I think, Andre, you alluded to this just a second ago, 
they're actually so the transaction-based approach is not really a method. It's a it's it's a category a of methods. That's right. So what are the actual methods under this transactional category? So the three methods are the uh, comparable uncontrolled price, which you'll hear oftentimes shortened to CUP uh, method. You, you'll also hear the term CUT with a T. Uh, which is uh, an IRS term, uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's really the same the same method. There and then there are two, and and that uses a unit price. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then there are two that, rather than using a unit price, use margins for comparison. And those are the cost plus method and the resale price or resale minus method. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And I'm actually just going to interject here for a quick second with our first CPE code word. That code word is gorilla. Gorilla again. And back to you, Mimi. Thank you, Matthew. So you were talking about the cup method or the cut method. Mm -hmm. By the way, the, the T versus the P is price versus transaction, That's right? right? Yeah. And can you tell the audience a little bit more about this method and, and how... How, what, is, what is the application of it? What does the application of it look like? Sure, absolutely. So this, this method really um, says if I have a good or a service or even an intangible in the case of the, the cut method, mm -hmm. the comparable and controlled transaction method, uh, that, um, that I know the, the unit price for. Um, in, in the case of a tangible good, it could be price per ton, or it could be price per pallet, or whatever whatever unit makes sense to use. If I have that um, uh, that metric for my intercompany transaction, and then I also have that metric for other transactions that are with third parties or between two third parties, then. I can use those third-party transactions as my benchmarks to create a range of unit prices that, um, that constitutes what an arm's length price would be for my intercompany transaction. How, do you, um, how often does it happen, right? I mean, if you think about it from a business standpoint, this is the way I, I tell people who are new to transfer pricing. I say, look, you know, I asked them the question, why do you think that if the cut method sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Why don't we use it all that much for documentation purposes? Mm -hmm. and, and really the bottom line is if you think about a business 
and a multinational, how often is that multinational going to uh, cannibalize its own business by selling the same goods, let's focus on goods, or providing the same services to a third party that it would to an affiliate? Okay. So let's put that into sort of real terms for our audience, right, Andre? So let's, since we're talking about goods, and we always love to use the Pepsi example, all right, so let's put this into real terms. How does this apply to a can of Pepsi? Absolutely, absolutely. Great, great example. I, I, I won't mention to the audience that you're drinking a Diet Coke <laughs> as you say that, by the way. We, we won't be smart our first yes. customer. <laughs> That's one. right. Um, so the perfect example is, right, If let's just hypothetically say that a can of Pepsi is, is manufactured in the U.S. and then is shipped to Canada to be distributed, to be sold into the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. So Pepsi in the U.S. is certainly not going to, or, well, they may, but why would they cut off their own distribution channel if they have a, a related party distributor in the Canadian market? Why wouldn't they want to, to sell every can of Pepsi that they sell into Canada through that distributor? If, if all of a sudden they start selling it to Mimi's distributor, then they're losing out on that margin. Whereas the Pepsi distributor can then mark up the the can even more and uh, and sell it at a price. But let's pretend that that does exist, right? Because I sure. think that's where that that's where your question really lies. in, in terms of a- application for our audience, this is this is the key, right? So if we have cans of Pepsi being sold to uh, our related party distributor in Canada, and then we also sell directly to third party distributors in Canada, then what what we would look at is, okay, well, what is the price per can to those third party distributors over the course of the year or over the course of the month? And we can talk a little bit about why that's a, that's important, uh, in a little bit. Um, and we would create a range of those prices, right? And so let's say I sell to five different distributors and I sell per can at 10 cents, 11 cents, all the way up to 15 cents. Well, then if I take that range and I see, and then I compare it to what am I selling a can at uh, to my related party distributor, and perhaps it's 13 cents, then I can very easily make that argument to the tax authority that, look, I'm not treating my related party any differently than I would treat third parties, or right. that, then I do treat third parties. Right. Well, and, and the real risk, I guess, from a tax authority perspective is that because you're related, you might just give it to them for free. Well, exactly. <laughs> Right, exactly. and if you give it to the give the cans of of Pepsi to your Canadian distributor for free, well, they have a lot more opportunity to earn a margin that's and right. be much even more profitable more or, or be that's more right. competitive that's and right. actually mm-hmm. undercut the uh, unrelated third parties mm-hmm. for the same product at that's the end right. of the day. So. You know, you bring up a really good point that we don't see the cup mm-hmm. method applied mm-hmm. in practice as often as you'd like to see. And clearly, you bring up one facet of why why we don't see mm-hmm. it in practice. What are some of the other challenges of applying the cup method? So because it's such a direct comparison, um, the standard of comparability 
is super high, right? And and what I mean by that is you can't compare uh, a can of Pepsi to a can of Coke. Yeah. You can't compare different grades of oil to one another. You can't um, com- even seasonally, right? I would argue that you can probably sell soda at a higher price in the summer, potentially, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. seasonality comes into play. Sure. Supply oil, and demand. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Yep. I mean, certainly for, for oil, Barrels other, oil. other sure. commodities, That's right? right. It, you, um, you, you can't make those comparisons because when you're talking about a unit price, of course the, price, the unit price is going to be different between you know, Venezuelan oil, which has a, a high sulfur content with you know, sweet crude from, that's about the limit of my knowledge. Different <laughs> <laughs> grades of oil. But, you know, street, Brent crude, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the, um, the, the comparability, and, and I'm focusing on product comparability, but, but again, seasonality comes into play. Arguably, volume comes into play. Sure. It, geography comes into play because it, it, a can of Pepsi may be worth more in Canada than it is in Mexico. All of these factors really prevent us from reliably applying the cut method. And, and you know, I'm probably stealing my own thunder here because I know I want to talk about it a little bit more in depth later on, but that's one of, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? Because it also makes it really important and mm-hmm. easy to to dispel why you're not using the cup method or other transactional methods, which... Right, right. That's actually a really good point you bring up, because I think historically, because the comparability requirements were so strict that more people were likely not to even evaluate whether or not cups existed, because it is very easy to just throw them out and say, well, it's not comparable because of this, right? It it is, right? And, And not just one reason. But myriad reasons. I mean, you can you can keep right. going on and on and on. And when when a taxpayer can do that in a report, it only helps to bolster um, the report. And, and as you always say, Mimi, right? It, it it puts the story in front of the tax authority in the light that you want to to paint it, right. Right? rather than in the light that they want to characterize it. If you don't evaluate all the transactional methods and you just directly go to a profit-based method, it's very easy for the tax authority. And you see this in court cases all the time where they say, oh, but you have cups or you have you have other third-party transactions. You should be using a transactional method. All because the taxpayer didn't Evaluate justify right. mm-hmm. why those, those, um, uh, those transactional methods really cannot be applied. Now, I, I think it cuts both ways, though, right? I mean, I would argue, too, that if you, as a taxpayer, have cups that are imperfect, but it shows the tax authority, but they, they help substantiate, you know, and, and perhaps they're imperfect, so you say, okay, well, my best method is a profit-based method, which I understand is part two of the podcast, so I won't get into those. <laughs> but, you know, if you go to that that ends, right? And you say, okay, well, I'm going to use a profit-based method, but I still have these imperfect cups. Well, 
again, to your point, Mimi, evaluate those cups because right. if they if they substantiate the same result, why wouldn't you also say, hey, look, these are in your documentation. Yeah, these are not perfect. Here's why they're not perfect. But guess what, tax authority? Look, even looking at it as a profit-based, I'm at arm's length, and on a transactional basis, it proves the same thing. I'm at arm's length and within right. that range. Right. So if it's like it's the idea of looking at all of the different approaches and all the positions that a tax authority could take That's right. and being prepared and saying, look, all the roads diverge into one one street of truth. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. So, you know, we, we've talked about why the cup couldn't really be applied or why we haven't seen it a lot in practice, but practically speaking, where do we see and apply the cup method? Sure, sure. So the the two main cases, I mean, you know, commodities aside and things like that aside, um, the, the two main cases are with intangible uh, property where there's a royalty involved, and the reason for that is there's a wealth of information publicly available with mm -hmm. agreements between third parties that spell out what the royalty rates are uh, for various intangibles that they're licensing one another. Are they perfect? No, they're not perfect. Right. I mean, by definition, right, an intangible is unique mm -hmm. and you're not going to have perfect cups. But, uh, but because that, that um, information exists, uh, we we see it widely used um, for for intangibles, and then for financial service transactions, we we use it quite often, right? Because they're they're again, it, and it, it's funny how data really drives and availability of information and availability of comparables essentially drives uh, the methods that can be applied. Right. Yeah, I guess in a lot of ways, methods that aren't, you're not able to apply certain methods because the data is not available. Well, level, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's step one. I just have a quick question. Um, just where tax authorities would already be able to be aware of your cups? Is that in typical documentation? Would they be able to see that on the surface? Or would it be the kind of situation I know we've talked about in podcasts before where uh, you're not filing exactly what they want, and now they can see more than they would elsewhere. Well, so it depends, right? I mean, it, it depends on how uh, how specific you get in your documentation, right? And and so that that speaks to what we were just saying. If you if you don't do a great job of justifying why you're not using your cups in your documentation, then they can latch onto that. Absolutely, right? And they can see in your documentation that you say, oh, yeah, so you do have some cups. Or you, you may actually have seen this in, in documentation before where you don't even, you say in, your, in, in the section where you describe and discuss why you didn't use certain methods, you say, yeah, I didn't have any cups available. There's no third-party transactions available, so I couldn't use the cup method. I couldn't use the other transactional methods. But then somewhere in the documentation, in, in a corporate overview or in the functional analysis, you spill the beans as a taxpayer about we, we sell this product to third parties as well as to this related party who then distributes it in country. Right. And all of a sudden, the tax authority picks up on that and says, why this disconnect? Yeah, and that's why controlling the story is so important. It's got to have a, it's, it's got to tie. Yeah. Right? So 
you know, we talked a lot about the cup. What What's another transactional type of method that that's out there? Sure. So so again, the cup the cup method is the most direct. It's the unit price of that transaction. But then um, you've got a second type, if you will, of um, transactional method that uh, that looks at the margin, and it looks at the margin of either side of the of the transaction, right? And so. Um, Let's start with the cost plus, right? Let, let's talk a little bit about that. A cost plus method would be applied to a, a tangible goods transaction. It would be applied to a services transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it basically says, okay, well, what is the return? What's the margin that I'm earning as the service provider or as the manufacturer on my costs? Right? And so similar to the cup, though, with the way you would use it transactionally is to then say, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm selling cans of Pepsi mm-hmm. to Canada for distribution and I make a 10% margin markup on my cost as the U.S. manufacturer, and then I also sell the same cans, cans of Pepsi to third-party distributors, and I earn, you know, in one case, again, let's just say that there are five, um, five different third parties, and I earn anywhere from 9%, 10%, 11%, 12 and so on. Um, we get to the same answer. Um, but rather than using unit price, we're using that margin for the manufacturer. Um, a lot of this has to, again, has to do with the data Right. Um, well, it could go to the data, but I was actually going to ask, and and I have my own example in mind. But how do you explain this when you're when you're telling people what's the difference between? Well, if you have a cup, why aren't you applying a unit price, and why would you apply a cost plus? Right. So, a couple of different um, reasons I would say. One is it, it depends on the fact pattern. Mm-hmm. It depends on things like, you know, if you have a, a contract manufacturer with no intangibles, you know, cost plus makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're, you're, you're performing a routine activity. It makes sense to look at the margin. Um, if, um, if you have intangibles as part of your manufacturing process or, or provision of services, I don't know that that I would necessarily use a cost plus. Right. But, you know, I I think sometimes when I explain it, what I might say is, and then this is purely hypothetical. (laughs) So I take a a red pen and a blue pen. I say, well, you know, my red pen, when I sell it as a manufacturer, I sell it for $1. My blue pen, I sell it for $2. Why? Because blue ink is more expensive. But the cost of manufacturing right. a pen right. is the same. That's right. Right? That's right. And and with a unit price, you really don't get that that distinction, if right. you will. Yeah, it and just shows that you, my two pens are priced right. differently. That's it's right. like, well, right. I sold red pens, mm-hmm. not blue pens. Well, they're both pens. That's right. <laughs> okay. So it, tell me a practical, another practical application of the cost plus method. Like, you know, put it in real life terms here. Um, what, in what other situations might you use it? I mean, going back to, I think you gave us the Pepsi example again, mm-hmm. and to say, okay, well, my manufacturer earns a 10% margin. 
um, I think you told us in terms of the services. What are some of the other applications? Have you seen it in practice a lot with your customers? I mean, what are some of the other situations where you've seen this opportunity to apply a cost-plus method? Yes, I have seen it. There are opportunities, and I, I don't want to get too deep into it because, again, in part two, I think we'll probably cover uh, the modified cost plus and the modified resale price. But the, the beauty of it is is um, you can apply it both as a profit base or as both as a transaction base, I guess I should start with, and also as a profit based, which opens up the the use cases, if you will, mm-hmm. for the cost plus and, and also for the resale price. Now, having said that, right, a lot of customers or a lot of taxpayers use cost plus as their policy and on a transaction, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so when they use that, that policy, um, I- again, when, when the data um, aren't necessarily robust enough to allow us to, um, to get to an exact number, we're able to at least test the policy to, to show that the policy in and of itself is arm's length. Hmm. Interesting. So from a drawback perspective, mm. how come people should not use the cost plus method? Similar to the, to the cup method, you do have a higher standard of comparability. It's not quite as strict as with the cup method. Right, the under example, the cup, the red right. versus the blue pen, That's right. right. Yeah. The example you mm-hmm. gave was perfect, right? But with with the cost plus, with, with a uh, resale price, you still have um, a pretty strict level of comparability. Uh, and so what happens is, um, uh, you know, things like, uh, like, seasonality, things like geography, functional profile, still get, um, um, still have a big role. And so we don't see a lot of great comparables. Um, a, a lot of, you know, we call them cups, even though we're, we're using a cost plus, we don't see a lot of great cups, air quotes, um, for our customers that we're able to apply. Um, but once in a while, again, even if it's imperfect, I'll go back to that. If it if it tells a consistent story with with a profit based approach, we um, we tend to to like to use it as a supporting method. Right, right. So you know, there are situations where I've been on the phone, you know, in fact finding interviews, and mm-hmm. we ask about the availability of cup data. And sometimes, if you ask the question to a customer and say. So do you sell to third parties? Well, the natural answer is yes, we do. Yeah, but it's a completely different level of the market. Let's tell the that's audience right. what that means. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that that's not just for the cost plus, but that's that's for any transactional method, right? The the level of market um, difference um, is is one comparability factor that really limits how often we can apply um, a transactional method, and, and really what it means is, well, yeah, of course I sell to thir- to third parties, but I'm selling into a higher level of the market. And so I'll I'll go back to the Pepsi example again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm selling cans of Pepsi to my related party distributor in Canada, who then. Um, resells it to retailers 
to supermarkets, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? And so, and let's put geography aside, let's put seasonality aside, let's put everything else aside. Let's say everything else being equal, I sell to, to, uh, to customers, quote unquote, in the U.S. Well, those customers are retailers, mm-hmm. and that is a completely different level of the market than my distributor in Canada. If I sell my can of Pepsi for 10 cents to my distributor in Canada, they're going to resell it for 15 cents so that they can actually make a margin on their costs. Whereas if I'm selling a can of Pepsi to a retailer directly, well, of course I'm going to sell it for 15 cents. I'm not going to leave money on the table. Right. Well, you know, besides leaving money on the table, there could be additional overhead costs. Well, that's true. I mean, well, I could that they need to I, cover. I mm-hmm. serve, right? In that example, right. when I'm selling directly to the retailer, then I potentially am acting as the distributor as well, right. not just the manufacturer. That's right. And so you have additional costs that you have to further support, which thereby increases the cost at that particular level exactly. of market, right? Exactly. And then as a consumer, you end up paying even more. Because, you know, now you have to pay the retail store for the brick and mortar, for the shelving space, all that. That's right. And so, right, I mean, all those are different levels of market, right? You have the end user, and you just back back out from there. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you also have the question of, is it a finished product, or is it a, you know... A work in progress. Right, something that gets used um, for further manufacturing. Sure, sure. So... We, we we talked about the fact that there are actually three transaction-based methods, so why don't we let Fiona take this one. Fiona, what is the last transaction method? The resale price method, also known as the resale minus method. And Fiona, how does the resale price method work? Similar to the cost plus percent method, the resale price method looks at the gross margin or the difference between the cost of the purchase and the price at which it's sold to a third party. So, Andre, we heard what Fiona had to say. Now, do you want to do you want to tell us from a human perspective how would you describe the resale price method? Yeah, I would. I would describe it as um, really the the flip side of the coin to the cost plus method. Um, right. It it all comes back to uh, what what is the you know if if, if I want to get technical I would say okay well for a manufacturer the the cost plus is is great because you're using the cost base as a denominator that cost base is a known quantity and cannot be manipulated by the transfer price and so you're getting a um, a clean benchmark, if you will. Uh, you know, you're getting a, a robust margin. Right. Your costs what, are what your costs are. That, yeah, you right. can't change mm-hmm. them. You can't change them, right? Whereas with the resale price, if you're it, essentially a resale price is a gross margin, uh, and uh, as a distributor, or as a reseller, you'll often hear that you know or see in documentation that resale price uh, methodologies are used um, by resellers. Of goods. Well, those those resellers, if you look at what is their variable or the the non-variable, the non-variable yeah, the cost, non-variable, right. mm-hmm. it's their sales to a third party, right? The, the, their sales to a third party are what they are. Uh, and well, I guess it can. It, it, it's that. Well, it's, it's a, negotiated. It's negotiated, that's, right? That's, it's, it's negotiated 
on arm's length terms. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Just as the cost to a manufacturer are. And so when you use that as a denominator for the resale price, you get a, a more robust answer uh, when you compare that to what third party re or what what you're making as a reseller um, on goods you purchase from third parties. So can you put the resale price method into the context of our Pepsi example? I can. I can. <laughs> so let's say we have a distributor in Canada that, uh, that not only distributes Pepsi, um, but, and again, you know, one of the challenges is <laughs> how often do you see something like this from a, from a business standpoint? But let's say, you know, our related party distributor uh, in Canada sources its, its Pepsi from us, but then also sources Coke or, or, or beer or who knows, right? Some, some other, other beverage uh, from, uh, from third parties. Right, and so what what we would do there is simply compare what is the gross margin that they earn on their sales of Pepsi into the Canadian market uh, from that they purchased from us from from their affiliate, and compare that to the gross margins that they earn on the third party products that they purchase. Right. Right, and, and theoretically speaking, we would expect to see a similar level of margin because they're performing the same Function. functions. Exactly right? right. And bearing similar levels of risk and things, and holding That's right. similar assets. Right. So, I'm, I'm sure the answer is going to be pretty similar here, but, but why don't we see it in practice? I know one of the reasons you mentioned clearly, you don't see distributors of, of Pepsi necessarily also distributing Coke at the same time. That's that's definitely for sure. But what are some of the other reasons why the resale price method um, needs to be closely evaluated? Uh, yeah, it's it's really the same reasons, right? You've got you've got level of market, you've got um, the different comparability factors, um, volume, geography, seasonality, um, the you name it, right? There's there's some there's some hole we can poke in, and <laughs> why it's probably some not, reason why it's not right. comparable. That's right. Right. It's almost like when you're a transaction-based method, you get picked on. Like you're not comparable because of A, B, C. That's right. But the other the other the the converse applies to profit-based analyses, right? It's like well, you're comparable because of A, B, C. That's right. Yeah. Yes, I'm actually also going to interject here with our second CPE code word, and that second CPE code word is marvelous. Isn't it marvelous to have this kind of insight? I like using in the form of the sentence. They just had the they just had the spelling bee. Um, I actually M A R V E L. Uh, I actually wanted to ask before when you mentioned uh, negotiated uh, arm's length prices. At what point does that come up? What's that negotiation process like? No, I will. Or, or if well, you, it's it's, it's really just part and parcel to the business, right? So, so in Mimi's example, her what her point is is, look, when I'm selling to a third party, if I'm a distributor and I'm selling my goods further up market to a third party, that's a negotiated price, right? So, if right. if um, if I say, hey, I'll sell you that can of Pepsi for twenty cents, Mimi might say, no, I. 15 cents is is what I'll take and then we wind up at 17 and a half 
uh, and and therefore that becomes that arm's length oh. price. But by definition, it's it's a market price, right? right. That's right. the going rate for that product. That's right. right. The like moment I sell, estate, right? yeah. The moment I sell that can or, or mm -hmm. pallets worth of cans of Pepsi to Mimi at seventeen and a half cents a a, a pop. That no pun intended. <laughs> uh, well uh, done. Yeah. Uh, it that's uh, automatically that market price, and then I I have that observation to use uh, as a comparable, if I so choose. Right. And if not, I better justify why I'm why, not. That's right. So I mean, so you, you know, you mentioned a good point: the justification of the method, the approach, mm -hmm. and. And, and we've talked about it over the course of this podcast right now. So explain to our audience, I mean, why is that justification and why is the evaluation and the method that you apply, why is the selection of that, why is all of that so important? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's critical. Um, first off, I, I'll say, you know, the, the entire documentation package um, is is. A series of justifications. Mm -hmm. That's the way you should look at it as a taxpayer um, when when the tax authority is reading it, right? And what and you're essentially trying to prove to the tax authority is, look, I have crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. I've looked at all the different methods that can be applied um, to to document that my transaction is arm's length. And here is why the method or methods that I've chosen are the, the right ones, right? This is why it's the most appropriate or best method. And this is why any supporting methods should be applied. And, and here are why you, if you audit me, should not bother trying to use these other methods and, and understand that I have very sound reasons for not applying those um, those methods. Right. It's almost like, don't bother. That's I've already right. looked at it. That's right. right. Yeah. And, but you brought up a really good point. I mean, you talked about supporting methods, mm -hmm. and we didn't really talk about that mm -hmm. too much. We, we touched upon it mm -hmm. a little bit. Can you just explain what is a supporting method? Sure. So, I mean, there's nothing that says that um, that you are, are you know, there, there's no regulation that there are any country with, with regulations that says uh, you have to use only one method one and only one method, right? None of that. So if you have the opportunity to use multiple methods, and and Mimi, I really liked your point earlier where you said, you know, these roads converge to one path of truth right. or, or street of truth. Or in, in The Economist's case, it's probably... Uh, a, a street with multiple lanes, though. <laughs> yeah, all right. Right. But, you know, if you have that opportunity and you're able to apply uh, multiple methods, then you absolutely should. And you absolutely, it, it just, it helps bolster. A supporting method is exactly that, right? It, it helps justify and bolster that, look, I've looked at this, I've sliced and diced this two ways now, and I get to the same answer. I'm, I'm at arm's length according to both. Right. And, and have you seen specific examples of where a tax authority challenged the method? And, and what was the implication of that? Um, we have, right? I mean, you, you, you see it in court cases all the time. Uh, and you see it um, where, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, where if you, especially with transactional methods, if you, if you 
let slip that you have third-party sales, but you then don't explain further and you don't justify why you don't really have comparables to use those transactional methods, they'll latch on to that. You see that all the time where they say, oh, but you do have cups. So you should be using, why are you using a TNMM? Why are you using a CPM? Why, why didn't you consider the cup? The biggest implication is really, you know, even, even if the tax authority doesn't have a leg to stand on, and even if you wind up going to competent authority, you wind up going to court, and you, you win your case, um, you've still spent a heck of a lot of time and money uh, arguing over this uh, when you could have prevented it yeah. by, yeah. <laughs> by just, like you said, right? Don't bother going there. Right. I've already gone there, and this is why... This is what it shows, this, and this is why we right. didn't this, think it was the most reliable method. And this is why we think this one is. That's right. I, you know, I... I I hear about that all the time, and and I think that you don't you don't necessarily see as many tax authorities challenging the method um, as much as you know other other aspects of the transfer pricing, like the fact pattern and latching on to that. But I think everything dro- is driven from the fact pattern ultimately, and so as long as your story. Oh, 100%. Is crafted appropriately. And marries up and with the analysis. That's right. And then the analysis and the approach, and, and you're demonstrating that you went through this principled approach to establishing what the appropriate transfer pricing method should be, then then you're, you're in pretty good shape, that's right? That's right. So, Andre, I, I, think, I think, you know, you've enlightened all of us, clearly, with uh, your perspective on transaction-based analyses, and I hope that the audience enjoyed this, uh, this very practical approach to the application of transaction-based method and found it educational. Matt, did you? Oh yeah, no. I, I I think there's a there's a wealth of insight, especially uh, especially for the folks who may not be as familiar. Note to multinational companies everywhere: if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Technology today at xbs.ai tp. That's xbs.ai tp. But I want to thank both Mimi and Andre. We do have time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know, and here's how it works. We put an expert, uh, Andre Anoyu, for today, in the hot seat and ask him a rapid-fire round of questions from our listeners. Are you ready, Andre? 
All set. Okay, here we go. Andre, you were part of Cross Border Solutions' first round of business in 2001. Uh, what's different about being at Cross Border 2.0 now compared to the first iteration? Uh, the, the biggest difference, um, hands down, is how far transfer pricing has come. Um, we, you know, it's no longer, transfer pricing documentation is no longer a nice to have. I remember back in the day it was, it was an insurance policy. It was like, yeah, we might, we might need it this year, <laughs> next year, five years from now to, for, for a couple of countries. I remember when it was five countries that really cared about transfer pricing. U.S., Canada, U.K., Mexico, <laughs> There's one other. My memory doesn't isn't as good as it used to be. Right, right. So. What mistakes do you see multinational companies making over and over again in this space? Uh, so I already talked about the lack of consistency. The so I won't I won't mention that one again. The other one that I would say is just as critical is you know preparing one generic report and. Um, trying to use that for all the various countries, right? I think that the various countries have really made it very clear that unless you have documentation that meets their specific requirements, you're, you're setting yourself up for, for adjustment. And um, there's no reason in this day and age with, with the technology available to not produce uh, localized documentation for every country that you're, you're in. But you're hiring a new transfer pricing consultant, uh, so everybody get your LinkedIn pages ready. Uh, what skills are you looking for? Uh, hands down, the, the top skill is critical thinking. You've got to be able to, to piece together this uh, thousand-piece puzzle that mm. is transfer pricing documentation. Right, right. We we hear so often again and again. It's the ability, you know, to have that kind of creative bent, uh, or that at least holistic approach, That's rather right. than just being, you know, a no, necessarily a numbers person. Um, but if now you could give your two thousand one self one single piece of career advice, uh, what would that be? Live like a pauper and max out my 401k. <laughs> um, and lastly, if your direct reports had to describe you in three words, what would they be? Angry <laughs> <laughs> We'll bleep this out because, because the Fiona show is a family program. <laughs> Just barely uh, <laughs> here at Cross Border Solutions show. Uh, that's great stuff, Andre. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much, Mimi, for leading such an interesting discussion. Uh, that about ends our discussion for today. Don't forget, next week we'll be talking about profit-based transfer pricing methodology. I know we, we gave a lot of uh, cliffhanger hints uh, in this show. Uh, and we'll see how and when those methods work best. Thanks for being here, everybody. Listeners, if you have any questions, post them on our Facebook page. That's The Fiona Show XBS. And we'll answer them on our next episode. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get the scoop on transfer pricing every week. Until then. Until then.